Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. On today's special edition podcast, we get into this elusive and intriguing topic, the makings of a psychopath. For those of you who may not know, I'm both a clinical neuropsychologist and a forensic psychologist, which means I have expertise in applying my clinical knowledge and neuropsychological specialty to the legal arena. So today we're going to ask the question, what is a psychopath? What's the difference between being a psychopath and having antisocial personality disorder? We're going to talk about how and why some of the most infamous psychopaths in history, like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, did the horrific things they did. I'll let you in on the checklist I use to determine if someone is a psychopath. And then I'll answer some of your most fascinating questions on this topic and end the episode with my supercharged tips on exactly how you can identify and practice pro-social behaviors in your own life. What you learn today may shock you and at times rattle you, but will also open your eyes in ways that will make a real difference in your life and in the lives of people you love the most. All right, so we're talking about psychopaths today. Let's start then by talking about some of the most famous psychopaths in history. And perhaps we can get a glimpse into how they were able to commit the horrific acts that they did and get away with it for so long. The first one is Charles Manson. One of the most infamous ringleaders in history, Charles Manson used psychopathic manipulation to gain his cult followers in the 1960s. Not only did he murder people on his own, he convinced his deepest admirers to commit the same brutal acts he did, resulting in some of the most notorious murders of celebrities and entertainment industry heads, including director Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, as well as coffee heiress, Abigail Folger. Manson and his cronies were sentenced to death, but California abolished the death penalty afterward. They've spent their lives in prison instead. Next is Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy is one of those names that's practically synonymous with serial killer and psychopath. He was known to be very charming, and he uses this shiny facade to lure his many victims. He killed at least 30 people across this country, but it took years for authorities to catch him because no one was able to believe such a charming, upstanding citizen could do such horrible things. Richard Ramirez's victims ranged in age from 9 to 83. He really didn't have a type. He ravaged Los Angeles in the 1980s with his brutal satanic killings simply because he said he was fascinated by it. That's not to say it had nothing to do with his upbringing, however. When he was just 11 years old, he witnessed his cousin murdering his wife and was asked to participate in the cleanup afterward. Jack the Ripper. London's Jack the Ripper was never properly identified, but he is world famous. He killed prostitutes in the late 1800s, but he also removed their sex organs. Not a lot is known about him, but it seems that he had a really severe hatred of women, particularly prostitutes, which has led some people to theorize that perhaps his mother might have been one as well. He left his victims on full display, dismembered on the street for police and citizens to discover. Jeffrey Dahmer. Part of the reason psychopath and serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer captivated the world was because he appeared very nice, very polite, and unassuming. According to the New York Times, he evaded police detection simply because they believed whatever excuse he fed them. Dahmer is most famous for not just being a killer, but a cannibal. When the authorities finally raided his home, 
they found human heads in the refrigerator. Eileen Warnos. Several documentaries have been made about Eileen Warnos, otherwise known as one of America's most famous female murderers. What made her such an intriguing figure was her eccentric, bright, and outgoing personality, and the way she would sometimes openly admit her guilt and at other times completely deny that she had anything to do with these terrible things. One moment, she would be lovely and friendly, and the next, spiteful and vengeful. She was put to death in 2002 after murdering men she found on the highway while working as a prostitute. Okay, I know that was really scary, guys. But remember, these are people who are probably on the most severe spectrum of what we might consider a psychopath. But what is a psychopath, really? To be clear, psychopath is a term that's thrown around a lot, but it's not a clinical diagnosis. And people throw around sociopathy, too, which is sometimes considered similar to or synonymous with psychopathy. The closest diagnosis we have to psychopathy in the DSM is antisocial personality disorder. The DSM is what psychiatrists and psychologists use to diagnose clinical illnesses. And the DSM defines personality disorder in general terms as an enduring pattern of experience and behavior that deviates from the expectations of the individual's culture, is pervasive and inflexible, has an onset in adolescence or early adulthood, is stable over time, and leads to distress or impairment. So what exactly does that mean? How do they treat other people? In the case of antisocial personality disorder, the personality pattern is basically characterized by a disregard for and violation of the rights of others. They lack empathy, don't care much for the law, exhibit a pattern of deceitfulness, repeatedly lying, using aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. And what about their personality? Well, these individuals tend to be irritable and aggressive, irresponsible, and don't consistently meet their personal or work obligations. They're impulsive, show a lack of remorse for the wrongs they've done. And this type of behavior pattern often leads to social, occupational, and legal difficulties resulting in distress to themselves and other people. Early onset of these difficulties contributes to the disruption of normal development, like attaining an education, better social adjustment, finding employment, and stable housing. In addition, it is estimated that 47% of individuals with antisocial personality disorder in the community have significant contact with the criminal justice system. So how many people have this diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder? It's estimated that the prevalence rate is somewhere between 0.2% and 3.3% in the community population. Shockingly, though, up to 25% of male offenders are diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder in federal correctional settings. So how are antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy related? There's many overlapping traits that psychopaths have with individuals who are diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, but it's not exactly the same. The distinction between psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder is of considerable significance to the mental health and criminal justice systems. Unfortunately, it's a distinction that's often blurred or that often people don't understand. Now, there is agreement that not every individual with antisocial personality disorder is a psychopath. In fact, research shows that only one third of people with antisocial personality disorder meet the criteria for psychopathy. So traditionally, psychopathy talks about traits like egocentricity, deceit, a shallow affect, 
a manipulativeness, selfishness, lack of empathy, guilt, or remorse. And in antisocial personality disorder, these traits are also mentioned, but the diagnosis focuses on behaviors that can be observed, like persistent violation of social norms, lying, stealing, truancy, inconsistent work behavior, and arrests. And this is partially because personality traits are difficult sometimes to measure reliably, and it seems at times easier to agree on behaviors rather than on the reasons why they occur. To further find out what psychopathy really is, Robert Hare presented a wonderful tool called the Hare Psychopathy Checklist Revised. This is a 20-item construct rating scale that uses a semi-structured interview, case history information, and specific diagnostic criteria for each item to provide a reliable and valid estimate of the degree to which a person matches the prototypical conception of the psychopath. Each of these 20 items is scored on a three-point scale according to the extent that it applies to the individual. So the total score can range from zero to 40, and the average score for offenders in general and for non-criminals are typically around 22 and five, respectively. Now, in my work as a forensic psychologist, you might wonder how I evaluate people with psychopathic traits. Well, that takes a really deep dive, a big comprehensive psychological evaluation that takes into account all different kinds of things, not just interviewing the person, but looking through their records, interviewing people who know this person and using standardized psychological tools like the hair psychopathy checklist. This is a tool that I use as part of my evaluation when I'm asked to assess a person for whether or not they might have psychopathy or to aid in the eventual diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Again, very closely related construct, but not exactly the same. The test consists of 20 domains, and I'm not gonna give you the actual test because that's protected material, but the information is out there in terms of what these 20 domains cover. And so remember, the actual test is very involved and it can only be administered by a trained professional. But let's consider these 20 traits when we think about this concept of psychopathy. The 20 traits are excessive glibness or superficial charm, grandiose sense of self-worth, excess need for stimulation or proneness to boredom, being a pathological liar, sometimes for no reason at all, being conning or manipulative, a lack of remorse or guilt for wrongdoings, shallow affect or perhaps a lack of emotion or fake emotions when an emotion reaction is appropriate. Callousness, or in other words, lack of empathy, where you just don't care when bad things happen to other people. Parasitic lifestyle, which means that these individuals are happily able to live off of other people's work and their money, and they don't really care so much about having to do that themselves having poor behavioral controls and bad impulse control, a history of promiscuous sexual behavior, a history of early behavioral problems and perhaps even trauma in childhood, the lack of realistic long-term goals, being overly impulsive, having a high level of irresponsibility, not taking responsibility for your own actions, having many short-term romantic relationships, having a history of juvenile delinquency, experiencing what we call a revocation of conditional release. So that means that when they're out 
early from prison or on probation, they tend to mess it up and get back in prison very quickly. And lastly, criminal versatility. This means that they kind of are indiscriminate when it comes to the kind of laws they break. They will do all kinds of crimes, some of them violent, some nonviolent. So again, please do not evaluate yourself and think you're a psychopath because you were nodding your head along as you were listening to some of those domains. As mentioned, people in the general population generally do say yes to some of those questions. But I think an even more intriguing question is, are all psychopathic traits bad? We know that when someone is at the extreme, bad things happen. These are traits associated with criminals, serial killers, people who violate others' rights and disregard laws over and over again. But what if you're on the milder end of the psychopathic spectrum? And what kind of people have these milder traits? Well, research shows that in the ranks of senior management, psychopathic behavior may be more common than we think. In some ways, this makes sense. In a corporation, one's ability to advance is determined in large measure by a person's ability to favorably impress his or her direct supervisor. Certain of the psychopathic qualities in small doses, like charm, charisma, some grandiosity, which sometimes may be viewed as vision or confidence, and the ability to perform convincingly in high-pressure settings are also qualities that can help people get ahead. In 2010, there was a really interesting study conducted in a sample of 203 individuals from different companies' management development programs, and the research showed that approximately 3% of those assessed in this management development program that these people scored in the psychopath range, well above the average incidence of 1% in the general population. Disturbingly, a more recent study conducted by forensic psychologist Nathan Brooks, where 261 corporate professionals were surveyed, showed extremely high prevalence rates of psychopathy, with 21% of people found to have clinically significant level of psychopathic traits. That's a figure comparable to prison populations. So what do we make of this? Well, there is an excellent book called Snakes in Suits, When Psychopaths Go to Work, and it is written by Paul Babiak and Robert Hare, who we mentioned before. And this is an interesting book on this subject and offers a comprehensive look at how psychopaths operate effectively in the workplace. And here's a brief quote from the book. Several abilities or skills make it difficult to see psychopaths for who they are. First, they're motivated to and have a talent for reading people and for sizing them up quickly. They identify a person's likes and dislikes, motives, needs, weak spots, and vulnerabilities. Second, many psychopaths come across as having excellent oral communication skills. In many cases, these skills are more apparent than real because of their readiness to jump right into the conversation without the social inhibitions that hamper most people. Third, they are masters of impression management. Their insight into the psyche of others, combined with a superficial but convincing verbal fluency, allows them to change their situation skillfully as it suits the situation and their game plan. So as you can see, some of these psychopathic traits, when kept at bay and when less severe, can help someone succeed and even in moments benefit others. But at other times, these traits, expressed at times even within the same person, can wreak havoc. Take, for example, during a major tsunami that devastated Thailand, an Australian businessman who became an instant hero with the media for single-handedly saving the lives of 20 people. Yet later, we found out that the same person had been a fugitive of the Australian police for years because of assault and robbery charges. 
In a similar vein, there was a British firefighter who was awarded a Medal of Honor for his heroic actions during the 2005 London terrorist attack. This is when he risked his life saving the passengers of the bomb bus. Well, now he's serving a 14-year prison sentence for his involvement in a $135 million cocaine ring. So given these examples, is there such a thing as successful psychopathy? Despite the popular perception, most psychopaths are not cold-blooded or psychotic killers. Many of them live successfully among the rest of us, using their personality traits to get what they want in life, although as sometimes at the expense of others. The very existence of this idea of successful psychopathy has been controversial, perhaps in part because many scholars insist that they have never seen it. Some say this concept is illogical, but it's not actually a new idea. This is an idea that goes all the way back to 1941. And what we know about people who tend to be more successful while possessing psychopathic traits is that there appears, in my analysis, to be three types of protective factors. And these protective factors can help people with less severe psychopathic traits to succeed in life. The first set of protective factors is a touch of social anxiety and good impulse control. So there was a research study done by Adrian Rain at the University of Pennsylvania, and Rain and his colleagues recruited men from temporary employment agencies in the Los Angeles area, and he looked at the ones that met criteria for psychopathy. Half of them had been convicted of one or more crimes, and then the other half had not. And so Rain provisionally regarded these men as successful psychopaths. He then had each of these men give a videotaped speech about his personal flaws. Rain and his colleagues found that the men they considered successful psychopaths display significantly greater heart rate increases during the speech, suggesting a little bit of social anxiety. Also, these men performed better on a task that required them to control their impulses. So, it appears if a person has some psychopathic traits, but they have a bit of social anxiety and also have better impulse control, that they may be able to rein in some of the more difficult aspects of their psychopathy traits and be able to function generally pretty well in life. The second set of protective factors is boldness and high morality. So there was a lab at Emory University that looked at whether some aspects of psychopathic traits like boldness predisposes people to certain successful behaviors. What do we mean by boldness? Well, boldness is defined as poise and charm, physical risk-taking, and emotional resilience. This is a trait that is well represented in many widely used psychopathy measures. But research has found that boldness as a singular concept is modestly tied to things like really impulsive heroic behaviors like intervening in emergencies. It's also linked to a higher likelihood of assuming leadership and management positions into certain professions like law enforcement, firefighting, and dangerous sports. So if we step back and consider this, somebody might have that boldness dimension, which is sometimes associated with psychopathy, but if they also have high morality and they really want to be bold for the right reasons, you can see how they can rein in maybe some of the more negative aspects of their psychopathy and function very well and help other people. And the final protective factor is positive upbringing and unconditionally loving parents. So this is a really interesting example. 
Neuroscientist James Fallon at UC Irvine looked through thousands of PET scans to find anatomical patterns in the brain that correlated with psychopathic tendencies in the real world. And what he noticed is that people with psychopathic traits had lower activity in certain areas of the frontal and temporal lobes, and that's linked to empathy, morality, and self-control. Well, he happened to have some of his own brain scans along with those of his family members mixed into the sample because they were used as control subject images in another study looking at brain differences between people who were diagnosed with schizophrenia and those who were not. And disturbingly, what he found out was that his own brain had similar patterns as those of the brains that had psychopathic traits. So I actually had the personal pleasure of interviewing James on an episode of The Doctors, and it was really interesting to discuss how he reconciles the fact that he is a happily married man who has never committed a crime with the fact that his brain had the same anatomical patterns that marked the minds of serial killers. And what he said was that he believes he is a pro-social psychopath, someone who has difficulty feeling true empathy for others but he still keeps his behaviors roughly within socially acceptable bounds. And he says that the reason is his childhood really helped him from heading down a scarier path. He was very well loved and attended to by his family. And also he has been aware of the fact that empathy is a little bit more difficult for him. So he makes an effort to try to change his behavior. He's consciously doing things that are considered the right thing to do and thinking more about people's feelings at the prodding of his family members who might have higher natural levels of empathy than James. So many of you guys have hit me up with your most fascinating questions about psychopaths, and I've selected a few to get into now. Let's go to my fab team producer, Stephanie, and sound engineer, Jackson, for what's on deck today. And just a quick note, all the questions today are anonymous to protect people's identities. I'm not going to even use first names today because a lot of these people sent me DMs and I want to make sure that I protect their privacy and identity. So hi, Jackson. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Dr. Judy. Hi, Dr. Judy. Hey, so do you guys have any um, personal experiences with psychopaths? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about... Um, one of um, my friend's sons, when he was little, who like displayed like kind of a shocking lack of empathy. Um, and I don't think he was, a, he was a psychopath, but it is very interesting. It's a very specific thing when you see a child who isn't empathetic at all. Yes. And I think that that is something that you know, it's like a parent's nightmare, maybe, you know, oh my gosh, if my child yes. possibly turning into a psychopath. And when you read all these things about how these serial killers all had terrible childhoods, you know, you do, you do get scared, like, uh oh, how do I turn them in the right direction? Right. But I think it's interesting what you were just saying, because this child was also very well loved and cared for and probably taught empathy as a skill, even if it wasn't innate in that way. Right. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that that's why these protective factors are so important to talk about that maybe when somebody has psychopathic traits or not so severe, but then they have these protective factors, they can actually function very well in life and again, be of benefit to society even. Jackson, what about you? Yeah, I think similar to Stephanie, growing up, I was thinking back that there was definitely people I went to school with that in the time I felt were just a little off just because I was young and didn't really have the vocabulary to discuss it. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, these people definitely were quiet. They were didn't have any empathy, didn't really socialize with anybody and kept themselves. 
And so looking back, I'm like, oh, that could be sort of a sign of some psychopathic behaviors. Yeah. And, you know, I think, of course, all of this is on a spectrum. We're not diagnosing anybody here, but it's, it's, it's that sometimes you see in the rearview mirror people you've interacted with and you think, whoa, was that essentially an indication of psychopathic traits? And I would venture that most of us have encountered one or two in our lives, at least, because again, if you think about the community prevalence of psychopathic traits being about 1%, but then in leadership positions being much higher, most of us has probably encountered somebody with some of these traits. So let's get to the first question, Stephanie. The first question is, I'm married to a psychopath. Seriously, I've seen some psychopathic traits in my husband, and I'm wondering how we can help such a person cultivate more empathy. It definitely doesn't come naturally to him. <laughs> okay, so if you feel that your husband is exhibiting some psychopathic traits and you're trying to teach them to have more empathy, one of my best tips is to actually really lock into something that the person cares about. Remember when people have psychopathic traits, they have a harder time putting themselves in other people's shoes. So if you keep telling them something like that, that's not really going to register with them the same exact way that it might register for somebody who doesn't have psychopathic traits. So it's actually more effective to appeal to them, appeal to what they're interested in, their goals, what do they want to achieve? And so in some ways it's not about developing empathy for empathy's sake, but it's about teaching them, well, if you can be more empathetic, you might be able to get what you want more often. And if you, again, find something that motivates them and find something that essentially gives them that sense of desire to want to change because it will better themselves in the long run, that's usually the way to get things moving in the right direction. And I've seen that happen um, multiple times with couples I've worked with where, again, similar question to you, they say, well, this person lacks empathy. They may or may not have used the word psychopath. And you have to appeal essentially to their own personal sense of goals and their own personal well-being and just find something that they care about and then use that as an in for them to develop the empathy so that they can reach whatever goals they want. Jackson, what's the next question? So the next question says, I'm reviewing my relationships in my 20s and I feel like I had a type. Very charming, impulsive people who showed a ton of affection early in our dating relationships, then were hot and cold, acting like they lost interest. I feel like in these relationships, I was the constant giver and all they do is take. Do I have a thing for psychopaths? What am I attracted to and why can't I stop? This is an excellent question. And I think that it's interesting because... We recently did an episode on codependency and why sometimes people get into codependent relationships. And actually, this is a very related type of need or dimension where sometimes you want that fixer upper because you think that maybe you can help them and maybe you can get them to see the light and to finally love somebody for real. And you think that maybe you can be the person who makes those changes. So on the one hand, you may actually be somebody who really wants to help. But on the other hand, if you can actually pull off such a feat, it gives you this huge sense of self-esteem and a huge sense of self-confidence. Like I was the one who did this. This person was an impossible project and I was able to transform them. And so that's definitely an aspect of what I find could be motivating you. But I also think that there's other types of things that are mixed in here. Sometimes people have this drive and it could have come from childhood, from experiences they've had that they feel like they're love from another person has to be earned somehow. 
And so if it comes too easy, they feel like, no, there's something wrong with this. But if they have to earn it, they have to work really hard for it, toil for it, then they feel like, okay, this is an exciting relationship. This is a relationship that really fulfills me. And so I have found that individuals who get pulled towards these very charming, impulsive people who are very hot and cold with them, it's like they're always being kept on their toes. And then when they get that burst of affection, they feel amazing. And then when they're not getting a lot of attention, then they work really hard for it. They're like, what can I do to make you care and love me again? And so it's clearly an unhealthy dynamic that can emerge when somebody might've had some early experiences that has taught them that their love can't come easy and that they have to always be working for it. And that's the only way that those types of relationships should exist. I also think that there is a possibility that people who have been through some trauma can also be attached or attracted to people who are psychopaths because psychopaths the really severe ones are very abusive, very emotionally abusive at the very least. And sometimes people who have been through trauma, they are attracted to chaos and it's kind of like the devil, you know? So if you think that's you, then it's really important to get some professional support and work that out so that you can have positive cycles and fulfilling relationships for real. I am so interested in your answer to this next question. I find this really fascinating. Okay. Here's what it says. I've read a lot about how women are writing murderers in prison, trying to vie for their romantic attention. All this after they allegedly killed their wives, their children, their multiple girlfriends. What gives? Why do people do this? You know what? I have seen that a lot too. And I've actually been asked about it in some of my media interviews. Why does this happen? And sometimes these people are still on trial for, uh, the atrocities that they've been alleged of doing. And sometimes they involve killing many of their intimate partners. And yet these people are saying, I want to be your next victim, essentially. It's like, why does that happen? And there's a couple of things that are at play here. You know, I think in the true crime world that we are in now, people who are put on trial, there's so much coverage about them in the news that they're essentially celebrities. It's a really weird, twisted form of reality TV. And there may be some people who do this because they want to be associated with a celebrity and they think, well, if I get this person's attention, then perhaps I essentially will have that attention as well. I will have the world's attention. I'm special. It's really weird. And I'm not even sure if that's a conscious motive for most of these people, but it's definitely still plays a role. I also think that for a lot of these individuals, they are probably seeing the media coverage and usually the media coverage is really negative towards the alleged criminal. And there may be a part of their personalities that wants to see the good in people and they are skeptical of the media's coverage. Like, no, there's something missing here. There's a part of him that's obviously a good family man. He's just misunderstood and I'm going to help the world to see the truth. So essentially they kind of take this project up and they want to be martyrs in one way that they can take the project up in a more intimate way is become the lover of this person because then they'll be intimately associated with them, really get to know them. And then they can make a great case in the media for why he is misunderstood and perhaps should be let out of prison or he shouldn't even have to go to trial or his name needs to be cleared. And I've certainly talked to some of the women who have enacted these behaviors in the past, and they will openly admit to the fact that they feel like this is a project that they have to take on. 
I also think that another piece of this is essentially people who want to have a, what I would call an undisturbed fantasy of a person, as opposed to having a real relationship. And what I mean by that is you're having a relationship with somebody who maybe will never write you back, or maybe even if they do write you back and they actually get into some kind of relationship with you, it's a very limited relationship and that maybe you just have a couple of visits um, and you have a couple of phone calls here and there and maybe just some writing back and forth. And essentially the person who is getting into a relationship with a criminal who is in prison is enacting all of their own fantasies of their relationships and what they desire their relationships to look like onto this person. And they can project anything that they want because there's really not enough time for the person to mistreat them, um, to have a true level of intimacy where things come up and you have to work out your issues together. So it's almost like a form of fantasy fulfillment for people who might be uncomfortable with real intimacy, but still want to have that feeling of being in love, but in a very superficial way. So those are my top explanations for why women do this. And like this uh, listener has caught on to, it's more than feels comfortable or normal. That is so beyond fascinating in a so twisted way. So this next question says, I work with traumatized children a lot in my line of work. How do you stop a child, especially one who has suffered significant adversity, trauma, abuse from growing up to be a psychopath? This is a great question and one that Stephanie, you had alluded to a little earlier when we first started this part of the conversation. Um, but how do we raise our children essentially to not have significant psychopathic traits? And we do know that individuals who are essentially tagged with psychopathy, they tend to come from really terrible, abusive childhoods. And it doesn't mean that if you have an abusive childhood, you're going to become a psychopath, but it is a risk factor. And so one of the biggest and most important things to remember if you're an adult in this person's life and you want to be a positive influence is that it's all about trying to be responsive to them, to their needs when they have them, um, not ignoring their needs. Sometimes they may be very dysregulated and it might come at the most inconvenient time for you as a parent or caregiver, but you want to try to be as responsive as possible and validate their feelings having an empathic approach to your caregiving. So maybe you don't agree with their behaviors or their reactions, but still trying to put yourself in their shoes and thinking about why might they act out like this? It's probably because they're having a need that that's not being met and they don't have the words to describe it and don't know how to get the attention that they need. And this is really important, especially when children are in distress when they look like they're having difficulties with their feelings, when they act like they feel like their environment and their world is unsafe, it's important for you to swoop in essentially, show them that unconditional love and show them that you will do everything that you can to try to protect them. These types of actions really help to prevent children from becoming callous and unemotional in their teen years and eventually as adults. And this callous unemotional trait is something that is known as a precursor to antisocial personality disorder. And callousness and unemotionality develops in children oftentimes because they notice that the world does not honor their needs. So they say, well, screw it. Why should I care about anything? And over time, they harden. So we definitely want to prevent that in our children. I hope those tips help. Such great questions, guys. And I can't wait to dive into today's supercharged secret of the day. Don't go away.
supercharged tips. Okay, everybody, we talked about a lot of different things related to psychopaths, covered a ton of ground, and I was thinking, what would be the most helpful supercharged secret of the day for you after this huge discussion? And I think it's all about how we can all be more pro-social. Now, many people in the population probably have a dimension of psychopathic traits. They're not all bad. We talked about the fact that some people can actually be very successful psychopaths, especially if they have certain protective factors in their life. But all of us can roll up our sleeves and become more pro-social people because that benefits ourselves and the people around us. So the first tip is to notice what is happening around you and understand the world is bigger than just you. This is really the number one tip on how to build empathy is to have a mindfulness for your environment and the people in your environment. And also know that even if you're suffering, even if you're having a bad day, the world is bigger than just yourself. Some of the ways to remind yourself of this is to just make a promise to reach out to at least one person every single day, even in the smallest ways, even if it's just a text, even if it's just a quick email or a quick phone call or a quick phone message. It just shows you that there is other people living in the world struggling with maybe their own problems. And also that connection just gives you more and more practice on how to be empathetic, especially when somebody you care about is suffering. And guess what? That's going to come back to you in spades because we are all learners. Human beings are observers and learners. And we learn a lot through this process called social learning. And so when you do nice things for other people, they will do nice things for you as well. Second tip is to experience empathy and feelings of responsibility for other suffering. I think sometimes with all of the negativity in the world, it's really easy to just block that out and to stop essentially feeling responsible for other people's suffering, even in some small way. And it's easy just to essentially wave your hand and say, well, that's just what happens. And we have to continue to work and cultivate empathy. It's not something that's just a given. It's something that's really important for us to always be thinking about, always be consciously attending to, and deciding that this is something that we care about and we want to take up as a skill to develop. And a lot of times when we think about this feeling of empathy, it's about your ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And my best tip for this is to actually visualize what it might be like to have somebody else's life and somebody else's experience. I think that if we were able to actually step into it in that vivid way, we'd really understand where someone's suffering is coming from. And this is a really good tip if you're in conflict with somebody and you're upset with them, you're thinking, how could they do the things that they do? It would be really, really helpful if you just did a quick visualization and said, let me think a little bit about what it would really be like to live this person's life. What might motivate me to say those things or do those things that maybe irked me, but are coming from a place of self-protection. Another great tip around this is to practice loving kindness meditation. There was an episode where I covered loving kindness meditation. I would definitely invite you to take a listen to that. It is one of my favorite meditations where you send compassion to others, even people you're not getting along with, as well as compassion to yourself. Because at the end of the day, that compassion for self is such an important building block of empathy for others. The third tip is to believe and work on the skills to help. Sometimes people will say, well, I would love to be that everyday hero. I would love to intervene in a bystander situation, but I don't think I have what it takes. And it's important that you actually take up the 
burden, essentially, of learning these skills so that you can benefit society. One of the things that I think is so important is to learn the skill of bystander intervention. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion about anti-Asian sentiments and all of these crimes that are happening. And I think that people don't know what to do when they see that happening in front of them. And they don't know what's a safe way to intervene so that they can protect themselves, but also give some support to the victim. And there's an amazing organization called Hollaback, and they actually offer free bystander training. And with this type of skill training, people can then find that they're more confidently able to intervene in a safe and practical way that also gives the emotional and physical support that the victims need to heal from the process. The fourth tip is to make a conscious choice to offer assistance. So a lot of times I think we are busy. We have much going on in our lives and it's easy just to turn the other way and say, maybe somebody else will help. But that's really the problem with the bystander phenomenon that has happened throughout history where maybe you think somebody else has already called 911. Maybe you think somebody else has already helped the victim. So you don't. And then eventually nobody helps the victim because everybody was thinking the same thing. So the best way to be an everyday hero is to essentially pretend that you're the only observer there. There's nobody else watching what's happening. And really you're the only one who can take this up. And whether it's in an emergency situation, or if you see a friend or colleague who's suffering, don't just assume that somebody has already talked to them. Make that first step and ask them how they're doing. If you know that they're going through a tough time, maybe had a tough loss, just call them and say, how are you feeling today? It's amazing what that little tiny action will do for the person to feel validated and to feel loved in very, very difficult times. And the last tip is to consciously surround yourself with pro-social role models. Again, we humans, we are social learners. We pick up a lot from the people that we're around, the energy of these people. And it's so important that we actually surround ourselves with people who are great role models in this way. People who probably have a good moral compass, people who seem really caring about others. This is the kind of people that we need to make sure are in our inner social circle. And when things aren't going so well, these are the people we consult for advice. So don't go to the people for advice that will tell you callous things that will basically drag you down with further negativity. Go to these solution-oriented people who are doing pro-social things every day and pick their brains and see how they might navigate a difficult situation. And over time, you're going to be able to develop this skill set so much more that you'll become a role model for other people looking for the same thing. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. And remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. And today I want to shout out a review by Jen. And Jen says, much love for Dr. Judy. Listen to this podcast and you will feel supercharged, I swear. I often feel the opposite of that because of my chronic mental health disorders. After a few years of following Dr. Judy's host career as an expert panelist on TV talk shows, her forensic commentary on true crime documentaries and her book on self-sabotage, I am thrilled with this podcast. Her knowledge and passion for a profession are demonstrated in every episode in a very authentic, approachable format with great varieties of topics and guests. Jen, that warms my heart so much. Thank you so much for following me for so long and for that lovely review. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. And I'm so thankful for each and every one of you supporting this podcast, which actually launched at the beginning of the pandemic. What a year and change it has been. I also wanted to let you know that I will be taking a hiatus from my podcast to work on some other projects, but I have so enjoyed this podcast journey with you. And I hope that this podcast has been helpful to you when I reflect back on some of the phenomenal people I interviewed and some of the topics that we got to tackle. I'm really proud and happy of the work that we've done. And I really hope to keep in touch with you through social media. So please follow me at Dr. Judy Ho on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. And check in with my website, drjudyho.com, where I have lots of free resources and a mental health blog. And I'm always here to help you demystify mental health and take care of yourself so that you can live your best life. Bye guys. I'll catch you later. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.